You're listening to Raising Curious Learners, a podcast from Britannica for Parents, where we talk to experts and discuss the issues and trends in child development, education, and parenting. Welcome back to Raising Curious Learners. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host, as always, is Ann Gatzikowski. When we launched our site, Britannica for Parents, back in March, the very first book review we published was recommending Alison Gopnik's The Gardener and the Carpenter, what the new science of child development tells us about the relationship between parents and children. I can't say enough about how much I love this book. If I had to recommend only one book to parents, it would be The Gardener and the Carpenter. Yeah, I know you're especially excited about our podcast guest today, and that is is the one and only Alison Gopnik. She is a professor of psychology and an affiliate professor of philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley and is a world leader in cognitive science, particularly the study of children's learning and development. She is also the author of many books, including the best-selling books, The Scientist in the Crib, The Philosophical Baby, and of course, The Gardener and the Carpenter. Alison, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. So we have so much to talk about, but let's start with the book, The Gardener and the Carpenter. Could you please explain the title of the book and what it means to parent like a gardener or parent like a carpenter? Yeah. So the title of the book came through trying to think of a a simple image that could capture a lot of the more complicated ideas in the book. And essentially the idea is that one way that we accomplish things in the world is by having a particular goal and having tools and techniques that we use to bring about that goal. Kind of like a carpenter going out and knowing what kind of chair he wants to build and then taking the wood and making it into the chair. And that model is very much the model of parenting, in quotes, right? That idea of parenting is very much a model of if you just read the right books, you find out the right techniques, you're going to be able to produce a child who has properties that you think are good, a child who's smarter or a child who's happier or something, a child who's thriving more. And that whole picture makes a lot of sense if you're thinking about a lot of things that we do when we work, but it's actually not a good picture for what happens when we take care of children. And a better picture, a picture that I think is more accurate, is think about what you do when you have a garden. So when you have a garden, at least most gardens, you don't know exactly how the plants are going to come out. And in fact, the best part of gardening is that you're always getting surprised by what happens in a garden. What you do is try to try to have a, a rich, protected environment in which many, many different kinds of plants can thrive. And there's a kind of deeper sense in which that's true, which is that if you think about a garden, for example, what you want in a garden is to have things that are different, that are unpredictable, that could come out one way, could come out another way, because that kind of garden is going to be more robust. If, you know, as, as we're experiencing now uh, with the climate crisis in California, if suddenly there's more days of drought or there's more days of heat, a garden garden that is well-tended can adjust to that kind of, those kind of environmental differences. And I think that's a much better picture of what it is that we do when we actually care for children. I love that idea of the importance of the environment. And we've, we've talked about that on the podcast Mm -hmm. before about the importance of the learning environment for young children at home and at school. So this is, this analogy of the gardener and the carpenter makes so much sense. But how did you come up with this concept? Because your, your book is full of research. It's not just your idea. 
I mean, it resonates for us and it makes sense for us. But tell us about the research that that shaped the conclusions that you made. So one of the big puzzles, one of the interesting things that comes out of the science is why did we evolve this long period of childhood at all? Why do we have such a long period of childhood um, when it's so expensive, both literally and metaphorically, when it demands so much attention and work from parents? And one of the ideas is that the childhood is actually a period where we can adjust to new environments. We can deal with the unknown unknowns, the unexpected things that happen around us. And childhood is really a time when human beings get to have this privileged, protected time when they don't have to worry about actually, you know, bringing home the bacon or doing specific things. They can just go out into the world and explore and figure out what world they're actually in, what the environment is that they're in. So that's a very different picture of what caregiving is providing, what caregiving is doing for you than this kind of carpentry picture where the caregiver gets to decide how the child is going to turn out. And a lot of our work in evolution shows that having this longer protected period actually lets children and young animals learn more about the world around them in a way that isn't as true if you think about an adult who's just narrowly trying to uh, shape a child to come out a particular way. And there's a bunch of really nice recent studies that have shown, for instance, that when children are in a situation where an adult is telling them, even just the adult just saying, I know how this works, what they tend to do is just imitate the adult and they don't explore the possibilities as much. Whereas if the adult says, I don't know how this works, let's find out how this works, then the children are much more likely to explore say, a machine and figure out how it works. So the data show that children are very sensitive to uh, what other people around them are saying or, or thinking. Even preschoolers are very sensitive to whether someone's intentionally trying to teach them something or is just giving them information that lets them explore themselves. And that means that there can actually be a kind of double-edged sword. One of the nice studies about this is actually called the double-edged sword of pedagogy, where trying to teach children too much can actually backfire because it keeps them from spontaneously exploring and learning things themselves. And I think it puts more pressure on parents too, because it gives the impression that there's a right and wrong way to raise a child when we come at it from that perspective. Yeah. In fact, I think a big thing that I hope is a message that people will take away from, from my book is that it's liberating, right? That there isn't a, you know, a checklist that the parents are having to accomplish, or it isn't that we're sort of judging how good a parent we are by saying, oh, well, did our child, you know, reach these benchmarks or not? And I think that that would be very liberating for parents that actually being in the moment with children, having that kind of moment by moment joy, and there really is a lot of joy in what happens in your life with young children, that focusing on that is much more productive both for the adults and for the children than this constant sort of, okay, what's going to happen 20 years from now? Am I reaching my benchmarks? Is my child reaching their benchmark? And I really sympathize because I think especially for middle-class parents in our culture, there is a tremendous amount of pressure. There is this sense, particularly, that if children don't do well academically, their prospects are going to be terribly blighted. Um, that's a, a kind of feeling that's out there, and that puts a lot of extra pressure on parents. But I don't think there's any reason to believe that that's good, that if you can relieve that, if if parents could have, a, especially middle-class parents, could have a more relaxed attitude, that that would be better both for the parents and for the children. I also feel like the, the pressure isn't... 
hasn't always been there on parents. I feel like it's a fairly new thing in the last, maybe not, but like in the last 20 years or so where there's this mounting pressure that parents feel that they have. I mean, is that the case? Do we have any sort of understanding of why, especially in our culture, there is so much pressure on parents? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point. One of the things I say in the book is even the very word parenting, which we all sort of take for granted, I guess it's in your podcast title and so forth, that doesn't show up in the English language until the 70s in the United States. Um, So there've always been mothers and fathers and parents. But the idea of parenting is this thing that you have to go out and do that you learn and that you train for. That's a relatively recent, quite recent idea. And I think it sort of started at the end of the 20th century. But a lot of the economic anxiety over the last 20 years has really uh, turned up the knob on the idea. There's some bunch of things that you have to do to make sure that your children come out the right way. I think another piece is that for most of human history, and certainly if you look across many different cultures now, the way that you learned how to take care of children was by taking care of children. For most of history, by the time you were old enough to have your own children, you would have spent a lot of time taking care of your younger siblings and your cousins and the other children who are around you. And if you look in almost all human cultures, except what people sometimes call our weird culture, you know, Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic culture, you see that that children are school age kind of children, seven, eight, nine year olds are spending a lot of time taking care of younger children. And what's more, because one of the things about human beings that we know from our evolution is that there's something called alloparenting, which means that people who aren't actually your biological parents are still involved in taking care of you. So, you know, this is the classic, it takes a village, but it really does take a village. Lots, lots of people are involved in caregiving. So you put the two things together for most of human history, by the time you were ready to have children yourself, you just kind of had been an apprentice caregiver for a lot of mm-hmm. time. And, and you'd seen a lot of other people taking care of children in lots of different kinds of ways. You hadn't just seen your mom, you'd seen your aunt and grandmothers and so forth. And so by the time you were ready to have children, you had a lot of knowledge and expertise, both your own experience and the experience of other people around you. And I think what happened really only starting in the last 20 years or so was that you had people who were, say, in their 30s or 40s starting to have children who had never had that experience, who hadn't, you know, even teenage babysitters have sort of disappeared from the scene, but who had had a lot of experience going to school and going to work. So when it was time to have children, their sort of model, if you're 35 and you've spent a whole lot of years going to school and working is, okay, this is like going to school and working. If I get the right books and I take the right classes Mm -hmm. or I fill out the right management plan, I'm going to be able to do this as opposed to thinking, okay, this is taking care of kids and I know what taking care of kids looks like and I kind of know that they're very different from one another and you have to adjust what you're doing on the fly in the moment. That's a very different kind of picture. And certainly this isn't the the case for everybody or everyone's experience, but I do think to your point, it has become a much more isolated experience in terms of parenting, which is why maybe you haven't had as much exposure to the allo parenting that you said. Most of the time now you're kind of with your immediate nuclear family. And so there isn't all of that that used to be there. And for some reason, as you were saying that, it makes me think of elephants because elephants are a matriarchal society, but they also are where all of the females kind of help raise the one baby. Right. And you're right, like that was part of our history, but it's evolved into something a little bit more isolated. Yeah, well, I've been thinking a lot both autobiographically and because of the new book that I'm writing about grandmothers. 
And grandmothers and grandfathers are really interesting. Grandmothers, because of course, we have this extra 20 years after menopause. And the only other mammal that we know of who experiences that is actually the killer whale, the orca. Um, it's very unusual to have that. And from an evolutionary perspective, you might think, well, why would you have 20 years when you're not actually reproducing? It turns out that even for the orca, the grandmothers are actually the locus of culture. The grandmothers are the ones who are passing on information from generation to generation. Orcas are unusual among animals in that particular groups have particular sort of cultural traditions, particular kinds of food, particular ways of going out and foraging. And it's actually the grandmothers more than the parents who are passing that information on to the children. And there's some wonderful anthropological evidence for the same thing, that the people sort of in their prime of life, the 30-year-olds, are busy actually doing things. And it's the grandparents, the 50 to 70-year-olds in, say, hunter-gatherer societies, who are actually teaching, who are passing on uh, passing on the information. And of course, caregiving is a really good example where having a couple of grandmothers around who've actually been through this is a really important source of information. And I feel very strongly that the uh, disconnect between older people and younger people and children has had really bad effects in general. And I think this parenting pressure is one example of it, where if you don't have that kind of background of the wise elders who've gone through this before, and of course, the question is, we're not going to go back to being foragers. So are there ways that we could reproduce some of that now, get rid of some of that separation between generations and and let that be a way that we could have a wider range of people involved in caregiving. A wonderful idea that some people have suggested, for instance, is to have a grandmother core in early childhood education programs. So just have someone in every classroom, say when, you know, in California, when we're going to have universal preschool, have someone who isn't a teacher, doesn't have to go through and get their ECE credentials, but is just, a, you know, a grandma, a, a, an older person who wants to spend time with children and who could be with those particular children in that particular classroom and earn as much money as uh, as Social Security or a job at Walmart or something like that, and then provide this resource to the classroom. So I think we have to be imaginative about thinking about ways of restoring that village that we've lost um, in a modern post-industrial society. I love that idea of the grandmothers in the classroom and grandfathers too, of course. And grandfathers too, of course. But right now we're even more isolated than ever because of COVID-19. Yeah. Are you seeing any new research being done to kind of measure how this is affecting us? There'll certainly be a lot of work coming out. Um, you know, again, we just don't, we just don't know at this point. You know, again, my general tendency, and I think this is true for most developmental psychologists, is that this idea about children being flexible, being designed to deal with different kinds of environments means that they're they're often more robust than adults are when the environment around them changes. And I think at least anecdotally, um, that's been sort of remarkably true about COVID. The children are sort of figuring out how to how to deal with the changed circumstances, I think, maybe better than the adults are. But of course, what that always depends on is the idea that you have this rich, protected environment. So I think for middle class children where they do have that environment, so they're, you know, in a pod with a couple of friends learning, I don't think that's going to do any damage. And it might even be a good learning situation, it might sort of be like being back in the village. But of course, that's not true for most to the children in, in the United States, for example, 20% of American children are growing up in poverty and have been for a long time. And even more than poverty, 
are growing up in isolation or growing up without that, without that background. And if the people around you are having to work three jobs or are themselves vulnerable for COVID, that's a very different circumstance than, say, the middle class kids who are figuring out how to use Zoom and, and be in a pod. And I think that's an important thing to emphasize throughout. Whenever we're talking about parents and children in our culture, there's, there's this rather striking divide. You know, the inequalities in the culture in general are even more vivid when you're thinking about children. So there's a big gap between the anxious middle class parents who are over parenting, as people sometimes say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, a lot of parents who are, say, a single, a single mom by herself in isolation, trying to work, trying to take care of children at the same time. Those are really different circumstances. And, and I don't think either of them are ideal in terms of uh, what we need to do to, to have children thrive. Okay, so it's time for a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Because the news around us changes by the second, reliable information is more important than ever. Consider supporting our quest for the truth with a Britannica Premium Membership and gain access to over 1 million pages of fact-check content. Go to Britannica.com premium30 and get 30% off your subscription today. Hey everyone, let's take a moment to talk about today's sponsor. Did you know Britannica designed a safe and trusted site that allows kids to be just that? kids? On Britannica Kids, you'll find content from great intellects across the globe, including leading educators, Pulitzer Prize winners, and Nobel laureates. And it's all designed with kids in mind. Go to kids.britannica.com kids30 for 30% off your subscription today. So I'm imagining our our listeners, a parent with a child who's maybe three or four years old, they're trying to work at home or they're in a stressful economic situation. And the message I'm hearing that would be helpful, I think, to any parent is to let go of a prescribed notion of what kind of child they're supposed to shape. Exactly. I I know your book talks a lot about conversations, like open-ended questions to ask children. Can you talk a little bit about what what it looks like on the ground in the the home when a parent has let go of some of these prescribed notions? Yeah. So I think actually this is a case where the early childhood educators, the preschools, you know, the good inquiry-based preschools like uh, uh, Montessori schools or um, Reggio Emilia is my personal favorite model. So if, if any parents are listening and I read up on Reggio Emilia preschools. So the idea behind Reggio Emilia is the children in preschools, for example, are going around and exploring things. And there's grownups around who are there to answer questions or to put things in front of them. So the idea is the children are really the ones who are learning and children just learn. That's kind of what they do. And the parents are there or, or the teachers are there as a sort of resource to have a conversation or to tell more about what it is that the children want to know about. And those kind of Reggio Emilia preschool classrooms are 
really nice models for what it would mean to rear a child in this in this broader way. But I think it's also important to say, especially with uh, you know, especially with COVID, is that I think another thing is just leaving the kids alone <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot more than we actually do. Uh, it is again really striking when you look at other cultures that kids are with other kids. They're learning from other children. They're learning from other people. And the idea that we sort of have to be hovering over them every minute because they might be missing a learning opportunity isn't is sort of a something of a joke. But I have had sort of had the thought, okay, here's what to do. If you have a nice, safe backyard, give the kids a bag of goldfish crackers and say, honey, go outside and play and mm-hmm. close the door. And we'll see you later. <laughs> Which again is like a lot more of what a lot more what like what children experienced in the past. I don't think parents should feel any guilt about occasionally saying, okay, I've got something to do for the next couple of hours. You just figure out how to amuse yourself. That's a that's a really good lesson for children too. I know we've been talking a lot about children making tents and forts at home. And I think a lot of that is just the child getting their own space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trying to sort of claim their own area if everybody's home at once. And I think you can kind of watch the way that children are making their own spaces or interacting with people themselves, figuring out how they want to be involved with other children. And and in so far as you can set things up so that children are, are learning from each other. You know, another thing that in some ways is a good thing about the current situation is that children are interacting more with children of different ages. And one of the things that I think is really problematic about schools is, you know, all the four-year-olds are in the same classroom, all the five-year-olds are in the same classroom. And one of the things that we know is that children are really learning a tremendous amount from interacting with other children, both in that younger children are learning a lot from older children and, and older children are also learning a lot about caregiving, about taking care of younger children. Another thing that I talk about a lot in the book is there's a really wonderful amount of work showing that children are learning by just observing and imitating what's going on around them. And, you know, if you take an example, like or think about something like cooking, you know, there's an example of something that we all have to do. I guess we all have to do even more now than we used to. It's a real skill. It's something that parents are good at doing and are actually doing. And children learn tremendously by just sort of watching and participating in what the adults are doing anyway. So rather than thinking about, okay, this is this kind of lesson that I have to teach the child. I have to do something that is not something that I would normally care about or normally do because it will be good for the children. I think insofar as adults can say, here's what my life is. You know, I cook and I clean and I garden and I work on the work that I have to do in the office and have children be observing and participating in that. That's a very natural way for children to learn. And and children love that, right? I mean, you know, there's nothing children like better than being involved in something that's a serious grown up activity rather than just being told that they're supposed to do the things that are the children things to do. That reminds me of um, the podcast that we just recorded where we interviewed a dad who is a classical musician. He's a horn player in the Houston Symphony. The orchestra players were asked to make little videos of their playing and most of them are, you know, very buttoned up and very formal performances. And he recorded himself playing with his three little boys just running around like crazy (laughs) the whole time and jumping on the couch. And, you know, they were just so authentically involved in the music and enjoying the music and involved with their father's work, but they were doing it in a way that really allowed them to be free and to play. Yeah. And of course, that's another chapter that I have in the book is about play. So we're learning more and more. In fact, I was just talking to uh, a bunch of people in in AI, so in computer science. One of the things that I've been doing over the last year is actually advising people in computer science who are trying to design artificial intelligence that would be closer to uh, real natural human intelligence. And one of the really interesting morals is that making a computer more 
more like a child, for instance, allowing it to play, allowing it to try lots of different things actually seems to help to make it more intelligent, make it work better. A nice study that we're doing now, for instance, and this is based on a study that some of the computer scientists did, they were trying to teach robots to do what you want robots to do, like go and pick something up and put it in another place. The way they were trying to do it was by having the robot imitate what a human would do. So the human puts the pen in the box and then the robot's supposed to imitate it. Well, it turns out that when you do that, the robots get to be very good at doing the specific thing they've seen. But if you just change the circumstances a little bit, then they fall apart. So instead, what they did was have the robots imitate somebody playing. So they took all the objects and said, instead of trying to do something with these things, just play around with them. They did this with adults and now we're going to try and do it with children. And it turns out that if the robot's imitating the play, they end up with a much more robust, much better ability to actually then go out and do goal-directed. It's interesting because it doesn't make you any better at any one specific thing, but it makes you better able to deal with change. It makes you better able to deal with the unexpected. And that seems to be true about studies of play in general. You know, again, I realize that with work from home, it can be hard. Children don't quite know what the context is of playing. So you sort of say, go and play, and they don't quite know what to do. But if you can encourage them to go and play, that has the advantage that you get some free time. Mm -hmm. And doing that kind of spontaneous play seems to be nothing but good for the children. In lieu of that, and going back to the example with the robots, is the play building that robust capability because of play requires a lot of trial and error? Or is it because it lets their guard down? Or, or what component of play would cause it to be something that really sets not only the robot, but also the kids up for a much more flexible experience when it comes to change? Yeah, we don't know exactly, but there's a couple of different things that might be involved. So one thing is just the low stakes nature of play, right? The fact that nothing is actually, you know, dependent on what the outcome is going to be. And we've done some studies uh, where we've shown, for instance, that children are actually better at learning than grownups in certain circumstances because they're not as concerned with what's going to happen. They're not as concerned with what the downside risks might be. They're, they're more willing to just be impulsive, explore, do new things. So one thing is that in a playful situation, you're not worried about specifically what the outcomes are going to be. But the other thing is that what creatures do when they play and young creatures of all species play is they try a wider range of things than you would if you were working. So if you watch kids pretending, for example, like, you know, first they'll pretend to have the tea party and then it'll suddenly be that they're in the rocket ship and then they're going to be in the pirate ship and they're moving all over this space of possibilities. And of course, in pretend play, they're trying out things that you couldn't ever experience or try in the in the real world. Again, for the robots, the thing that is really helping is this idea that the way that computer scientists put it is that they're exploring more of the space of possibilities than they would if you were just trying to get them to accomplish the particular goals. They're kind of looking around and finding out all the possible things that they could do. If you think about play, you know, think about watching watching children play. That's exactly the sort of thing that goes on in play. You keep varying things. You try one thing, you change it a little bit, you try something else, you see what the outcome is going to be. When you hear the word play, you think light and fun. But when you get down to it, it's such a complex piece. Like there's so much complexity to it for the kids. And that alone is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to talk to the computer scientists is when you actually say, all right, well, you know, what you should do is get your machines to play and they come back to you and say, okay, so what's the play program? It's really challenging. It's really interesting. What exactly are the things that make play so effective? It feels like we all know about playing, but playing is actually a lot more mysterious than work. We know a lot more about how to design a system that will be reinforced that will get to a particular goal than we do about designing a system that will play, even though we have reason to believe that evolution designed human children to be really great, playful systems. So tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now. You mentioned a focus on grandparents. Yeah. So 
So my new book, at least at least at the moment, is called Curious Children, Wise Elders. And the idea is that part of what's distinctive about human beings, of course, is that we have this very long childhood. Another thing that's distinctive is that we have this time between 50 and 70. You know, chimps, by the time chimps are 50 and they're not fertile anymore, they are likely to die. We seem to have got like at least this extra 20 years. And even in hunter-gatherer cultures or forager cultures, if you make it past 20, you're pretty likely to make it to 70. So the question is, what's that extra time period about? And what I've been arguing is that it's the symbiosis between having that long period of childhood and then having this extra part of our lives, this elder slot, where I think we really function differently than we do when we're, say, in in our 30s or 40s. There's some evidence, for instance, that everybody kind of gets happier when they get over 50, or at least they get more content. They're not as driven to have outcomes. And I think there's this really lovely kind of parallelism between the children who are in this exploratory mode, and then the elders who are in a kind of teaching uh, mode. And as I say, there's some evidence from anthropology that that's true. Instead of now thinking about what do I have to do to, you know, get resources and made and succeed and make my way in the dominance hierarchy, all those kinds of things that we, we all do. In that later period, it's more like, what can I do for other people? particularly what can I do for children? What kind of caregiving can I do? How can I pass on the knowledge that I've accumulated in my life? I have a, an article that's just out in a journal called Eon about this. I think it's kind of striking that we ignore the children and the elders. Like they don't get nearly as much attention. They're both vulnerable. They need protection. They need to be taken care of. And yet they're serving this really, really important, deep human function. I think they're actually the key to both our intelligence and especially our ability to have culture, to pass on traditions. So, you know, my slogan is that we're actually most human before puberty and after menopause. That's when we're, <laughs> that's when all the really human things about learning and teaching and transmission and culture and all those things happen. And kind of in between, we do try to do all those things. But of course, in between, we have to do all the more goal-directed things too. And I think if you look at the difference, and again, this may be partly the autobiography of having become a, a grandmother, I know have four grandchildren. I think there is some evidence that the ways that parents and children interact is quite different from the way that grandparents and children interact. And again, is even in forager cultures. So the parents are much more, you know, involved in the practical every day. And it's the grandparents who are telling the stories, singing the songs, giving the idea of the, the big picture of the culture. So anyway, putting together the grandparents and the children. And of course, one of the great tragedies of COVID has exactly been that separation. But, you know, as with so many other things with COVID, it's really just exaggerating something that was already there. So we already were a culture that had a lot of separation between grandchildren and grandparents or just older people, elders and and youngers. And I, I think from an evolutionary perspective and just from a happiness perspective, we'd be better off if we could do this. Now, I don't know how much this is just special pleading about I want to spend more time seeing my grandchildren. But <laughs> No, I, I think I think you touch on maybe there's just this like natural understanding between kids and elders. There's just something that they both share. And so there's that natural understanding between them. My mom, so she she's a grandmother to my niece and she's made it her effort this COVID to just be even more in touch with my niece. And so they'll have little virtual play dates and she and I do too, but my mom specifically goes about it in terms of reading together or whatnot. And then for me as the aunt, it's playtime. So whatever <laughs> she wants to do, but yeah, my mom is, um, I think she's missing them too, but she's 
he's very much about how important it is to still in some way have that connection. Yeah. And I, and, you know, we're figuring out how to do this. My, my, uh, my grandchildren and I are, you know, watching um, movies together over Netflix parties. So we can actually be watching movies together and talking about them and even eating popcorn together. So we're sort of trying to figure out how to do that. But I think when this is over, it'll be even more important. And I think, I do think there's been an interesting change. You know, the real estate people say that one of the greatest areas of housing is people want to have intergenerational housing, that actually the idea that we're all separated, which was true even for me when I was growing up, I raised my children, you know, far away from from their grandparents. I think people are starting to realize that they would like to have that. And as I say, one of the things about humans is it doesn't have to be biological grandmothers. It could be could be an aunt. It could be a friend. It could be someone who is in the community who's providing that kind of relationship. And I think that's a very important and very sort of underappreciated relationship. In a way, there's a kind of Buddhist point, which is that I think both the children and the elders end up living much more in the moment and appreciating things in the moment than we can do when we're in the midst of planning and knowing what our goals are and trying to go to them. Now, of course, the children couldn't survive unless there were a bunch of grown-ups who were out there and planning and figuring out goals and figuring out how to put the food on the table and, and so forth. But I do think part of the reason why we get happier after 50 is because we sort of get a bit released from those immediate pressures about, you know, how am I going to run my life? How am I going to accomplish my goals? And one of the things that I think is wonderful and sort of underappreciated about being a parent, being a parent is such a complicated thing because on the one hand, you know, we have all these things that we have to do and these goals we have to accomplish. But on the other hand, we actually get to be with the children who are not like that, who are not in that state, the children who are who are just very open to everything that's going on around them. So we get to we get to kind of vicariously be in that state of much more much more open awareness, much more free way of being in the world when we go for a walk with a child. And again, I, I hope that part of the point of the book is to let parents feel happier and more engaged with that rather than feeling as if when they're with children, what they have to be doing is yet another accomplishing yet another set of goals. Yes, yeah, so if we're us to be in the moment when there's a child right there in front of us who wants to play with us. Exactly. And we get to play too, which is not a bad, not a bad outcome. Well, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation and I'm just delighted that we spent so much time talking about grandparents. <laughs> We're going to have to revisit that again in, in another podcast. Do you have any um, final thoughts or words of wisdom for our listeners? Well, you know, it's, it's tough. Uh, I don't think anyone has any kind of solution. One of the things that was something that happened as I was doing interviews about the book is that everybody would say, you know, I think that you're absolutely right. We shouldn't be thinking in terms of, you know, some set of recipes or some set of things that we have to do with parents. I completely agree with you. Just one more thing for our listeners. What do you think our parents should actually And I appreciate the tension between those two things, right? Uh I mean, it's, you know, human life in general is about trade-offs and about trying to put together goals that aren't easily compatible. And that's definitely true about being a parent. So I think another kind of meta thing is that if parents feel as if they're conflicted or having a hard time putting everything together, that's okay too. That comes with the territory. I do think this picture about being in the moment with children, actually appreciating this amazing, wonderful thing, one of the greatest things that we know of in science, which is that every single human child manages to learn as much as they do, being sort of a witness of that instead of always thinking that you have to be controlling it. I think it just makes your life easier and more fun, which is which is a good accomplishment in and of itself. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, thank you, Dr. Allison Gopnik, for speaking with us today. We really enjoyed it. We did. Thank you. Happy to talk to you. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Raising Curious Learners. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Allison Gopnik, developmental psychologist and professor at UC Berkeley, for reminding us that parenting is and should be an individual experience for every family and every child. She is also the author of many books, including The Gardener and the Carpenter, which we referenced throughout this episode. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host, as always, is Anne Gadzikowski. Our audio engineer and editor for this program is Emily Goldstein. If you liked this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and share with your friends. This episode is copyrighted by Encyclopedia Britannica Incorporated. All rights reserved. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Britannica for Parents, a free site with expert advice for your tech-savvy family needs. Whether it's explaining Zoom to your three-year-old, navigating your child's new friendship with Siri, or more serious topics like talking to young children about the police or sending your kids back to school during the COVID-19 pandemic, we're here to help with resources for parents of all age groups. Check us out at parents.britannica.com. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.